Thank you, and, and welcome to everyone. It is great to always bring people together to listen and to hear from experts about society's most pressing problems. And uh, Zocalo does it better than anyone. It's really, we're really impressed. And we've been doing this, UCLA has been doing this across Los Angeles and increasingly in DC, really talking about issues that are important to all of us uh, uh, globally. Uh, we're pleased to see all of you here, especially honored to have Congressman Katie Hill, who you'll hear from shortly. I'm also delighted to continue to collaborate with Zocalo. As I said, you put on great programs. They're always engaging. And uh, you can always tell from audience response, you always need to hit the right areas and uh, things that are really of great concern. So for eight years, Zocalo has helped us create and engage events like this that bring together new audiences. So there's always new people coming into the, uh, the group. So when I think about society's most pressing problems, I find myself thinking a lot about depression You know, as a college Chancellor, and the worst things I have to deal with often is to deal with to talk to families about students that have you know committed suicide, and it's a fact of life for all of us across the country. And uh, every time we do this, this is the, the worst events we have certainly on campus, and uh, we're all committed to try to minimize those events. But overall, you know, the the data is really daunting. I think 300 million people worldwide suffer from depression. There's more than 800,000 suicides each year. And the, and the rates of depression among teens has been increasing, and this really concerns us. College students are at risk. Uh, we can't keep up with the need for counseling services. About one in five has serious depression or anxiety. So we see about 20% you know, of the students will come in and see a counselor at least once during their time. And many go undiagnosed because they're hesitant to, to uh, come in because of the stigma. So that's a very important part of our project is to reduce the stigma. Depression worsens the outcomes of other common health problems like heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. It works, to, unfortunately, together with a lot of other diseases to make them worse. So again, it's, um, it's another serious issue. And depression is responsible for billions of dollars of lost productivity annually in the workplace. People that are either unable to work or working at lower productivity because they're just not, not happy. So despite these stats, which are daunting, we failed to really treat depression as a major public health crisis. And as a neuroscientist, I'm always astounded that this hasn't been more carefully studied over the years. It, it's interesting, you know, with all the diseases that we have really focused on, you know, depression is one that probably hasn't received enough attention. So at UCLA, we decided to approach this uh, deficit by launching the Depression Grand Challenge. We decided this is a worldwide problem. It's understudied. Perhaps we can really make a difference. So a bold, multidisciplinary initiative with the goal of cutting the global burden of depression by half by 2050. So this really has, we have grand plans here. UCLA obviously can't do this alone, but we can figure out the best practices we hope to be able to have a real impact on depression across the world. So we're conducting the largest depression study in history. So we have ambitious plans. We want to uncover the origins of depression. You know, what's going on with brain chemistry? What's happening? What about genetics will make you predisposed to it? Most importantly, to understand depression so we can uh, really discover new treatments and interventions. So we want to learn about the causes so we can come up with smarter uh, treatments. You know, I'll leave the details here to the experts, but, uh, and we, who we're very lucky to have with us, some of our great scientists from UCLA. I hope you learn a lot from this discussion. You know, UCLA is committed in the long haul to really making progress in this area. And I tell everybody, this isn't a sprint, this is a marathon. And we're going to be in this for many, many years, but I think we're making progress already. So thank you for being here. Thank you.
Thank you, Chancellor Block. I'm now delighted to introduce Representative Katie Hill of the 25th Congressional District of California. Well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here. This is a, a great crowd. And when, first of all, my district is in northern Los Angeles County. And, um, and so uh, I'm also very connected to UCLA because I kind of grew up on UCLA campus. My grandfather was a, a political science professor. Um, but when I found out about this study in particular and this event, uh, I decided I needed to get involved in some capacity. One of the reasons for that is that this past work period while I was back in the district, uh, we, you know, you hear, you have these issues that you think are on the tops of people's minds because of what you see on the news and everything like that and healthcare and, um, and you know, we, we get a lot about transportation and infrastructure and you hear about immigration. But when I was talking to people, regardless of the setting, when, you know, whatever kind of groups they were, whether they were firefighters or um, um, healthcare professionals or law enforcement professionals, even students, we had a couple of different town halls with young people, the most common thing we heard about, and in every single setting, it was mental health. And specifically, it was the lack of resources, the lack of understanding around it, um, people asking uh, specifically about depression, about suicide, and, um, and my team and I were just reflecting on how, uh, I don't know, interesting that is. I mean, I, 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 I struggle to say surprising, um, but it, it kind of is. And I come from a background with mental health. I, I was the executive director of PATH, People Assisting the Homeless. And we all know about the intersection of mental health and homelessness. But the real reason that this matters so much to me is it's personal. Uh, yesterday was Worldwide Suicide Prevention Day. And it was also three years to the day from when one of my closest friends uh, committed suicide. Um, and she, she died by suicide actually on, um, at my house. She was living with me at the time. And so it was a really, she was young, she was in her 20s and uh, it, was, it was something that took us, you know, it was shocking for us and for the family. Shocking in large part for me because I'm also somebody who struggles with depression. And I, was, I couldn't believe that I didn't see the signs. Um, and you know, it's something that depression in general runs in my family. I was diagnosed years and years ago, but I was able to get help. And I have, um, you know, I'm here as a member of Congress. And so the message of recovery, of us coming together collectively, reducing and eliminating the stigma and, and figuring out how it is that we can address this as a public health crisis, as a treatable, manageable condition, um, not something that should be stigmatized, is so important. And I'm just so grateful for the work that you all are doing. Uh, and I wanted to say thank you. So I'm excited to learn more um, and proud to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Representative Hill. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Amy Ellis Nutt. Amy Ellis Nutt is a former science writer for the national team of the Washington Post and the author of three books, including two New York Times bestsellers. She has been awarded a Pulitzer Prize and was a Nieman Fellow in journalism at Harvard. She is currently working on her fourth book, American Madness, a narrative about mental health treatment in America. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Amy Ellis Nutt. I'd like to introduce the three um, people on the panel today. Uh, Dr. Nelson Freimer is a psychiatrist and geneticist and the founding director of the UCLA Depression Grand Challenge. We'll hear about that later. He also founded the UCLA Center for Neurobehavioral Genetics 
His career has focused on understanding the genetic uh, causes and patterns of depression and bipolar disorder. Dr. Shelley Venavoli, no, I, I didn't get it right, okay. is the deputy director for the National Institute of Mental Health, where she has worked since 2001. She has redefined the Institute's approach to neurodevelopment and bipolar disorders and has made significant contributions to the Institute's strategic plan, suicide prevention plan, and numerous research efforts. Dr. Michelle Krask is a psychologist focusing on the behavioral and psychophysiological features of anxiety and depression. She is the former president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies and the leader of the Depression Grand Challenge. Okay, so I, I want to begin with a foundational question. Um, how can we truly assess the rate of depression uh, in the United States or in the world for that matter without really having an adequate definition of depression? Well, I, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that we have to start with really a rethinking of what we mean by depression. and. Depression is almost certainly not one single entity, and I think it's much better for us to be thinking about depression as really a sort of a group of illnesses which have many features in common, and, um, and so we're not going to have a single definition of depression. I think what we really need to do is look at these experiences that people have of um, really extreme sadness with the inability to work, the inability to get out of bed in its most severe forms, the, um, the thought and often the attempt at suicide. Together, all of these features constitute depression, but we're almost certainly going to find out that, that different forms of depression will have different causes and different trajectories, and really what we need to do is devote ourselves to understanding depression in all of its manifestations, and it's only then that we'll be able to define depression. Does that mean, and um, Michelle and Sherry, please um, add in, that we should get rid of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which I believe Tom Insel was uh, promoting, is that useful anymore, or do we need a new protocol? Sure. I mean, I think we have to keep in mind that sometimes people don't meet strict criterion for disorders, like something right. like the DSM. And really what we need to do is care for people who need help, right? So their depression may be what we would call sub-threshold for meeting DSM uh, diagnoses. Um, and that doesn't mean they don't need treatment. So I think when we're talking about caring for people with mental illness, we need to think much broader than strict definitions. Um, there are times when the definitions like that are helpful. When you're testing medications, it helps you to narrow the population that you're studying so you can really see what works. But if you're talking about trying to understand the causes, I think we have to do what Nelson said, to really understand that depression is a, a yeah. wide range of disorders. There's not going to be one cause or even one set of causes. And just to add on to that, I think that the, the notion of the DSM, which really provides a way of defining a condition that is easily understood by people from or different organizations, it means we're all talking about the same thing at the same time. That facilitates research, that uh, facilitates the development of science, but it's not perfect. And 
Nelson indicated, there are many dimensions that underlie and cross over depression, and there are many types of depression. So think of the child who develops depression in their adolescent age range, or the woman who develops depression postpartum, or the person who develops depression in relation to a chronic medical condition. They're all depression of some shape or form, but they have both shared features and unique elements that we need to sort of understand more fully than, than is provided by diagnosis. Going back to this question, which um, is really what this is all about, um, the increasing rate, whether or not we call it an epidemic, um, is there something about modern life that creates this fertile soil for depression to take root? So that's a very important question, um, and it is true that the rates of depression um, and related conditions are actually increasing. And this, isn't, this is the case not only in North America, it's also in many countries around the world. So the World Health Organization has recognized that from 2005 to 2015, there was a 15 to 18% increase in rates of depression and anxiety worldwide. Uh, in the United States, there have also been increases but it's particularly in the younger age group. Whether you define that from 12 to 25 or 18 to 29, that round about that age group is where the increased rates are most strongly observed, which then brings back to the question, what is it that's happening in today's world that may be exacerbating the, the rates beyond what we can consider and what Nelson can talk more directly about, the underlying causes. So the underlying causes being probably fairly constant, but there's something on top of that that is exacerbating the expression of depression and related conditions. Lots of hypotheses that we can go into. Um, uh, the stress, financial strain, uh, trauma, some people uh, have even discussed the role of social media uh, and the negative side of social media. There are many positive features of social media, but for that younger age group, what is it about that younger age group that might make them a little bit more vulnerable to expressing depression uh, on top of their underlying um, causal vulnerability pathway? Okay. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, and, you know, and clearly, as Michelle says, the evidence is very strong that there is an increased frequency of depression. Um, but one thing that, that I think we also have to be aware of is that it, it's almost certainly the case that the majority of people who are suffering from depression never do come to the attention of the healthcare system or never diagnosed. And so some of what may be occurring is actually greater recognition of depression among individuals who maybe never came to attention in the past as well. So, you know, we know that, that that's not the whole of the story, but that could be part of it. Uh, you know, that's related to um, resources, mental health resources. And in the United States today, 65% of non-metropolitan counties in the U.S. lack a psychiatrist. 47%, nearly half, have no psychologist. What do we do about this, especially rural areas, obviously? So um, I'm from the National Institute of Mental Health, and we are the lead funding agency for funding uh, research on mental health and mental illness. And 
we have really broadened our program to understand the other options that we have for um, intervening when psychiatrists, psychologists, and other um, specialty care providers are not available. So one example is through telehealth. Um, if, you, um, if an emergency department can't fully staff a psychiatrist around the clock, maybe an option is to link in a psychiatrist from another area. Or if you're in a rural county, have child psychiatrists available, psychologists available through telemental health, which we've seen some efficacy in that space. So that's, that's one example. Um, and, and I would just like to add on to that, mm -hmm. that um, we need to be thinking about very innovative ways of addressing um, the lack of clinical resources. We could certainly boost up clinical resources in terms of you know, well-trained clinicians, psychiatrists and psychologists, and we can offer telehealth. We may never be able to meet the need based on relying solely on that, that pathway. Um, when you think of the rates of depression and anxiety um, and related conditions, and especially in the, the, as I mentioned, the younger age group where the rates are increasing, it's, it's almost impossible to think we'll ever have enough clinicians to do the job. So maybe at some point in this evening we'll be talking a little bit more about other avenues other than relying solely on clinicians. Yeah. I have a question about that later. Um, some, people, some people believe that there isn't a depression epidemic, but rather an epidemic of people being overdiagnosed with depression, um, particularly those who are referred to as the worried well, um, or people simply dealing with problems in living. Can we separate that out? Do you think it's a problem? And obviously, I think about 70% of um, primary care antidepressants are coming from primary care physicians. Well, I'll, I'll just give my perspective on it, which is that um, I don't see that that's what's occurring because we see that there's an increased frequency of people with life-threatening and even life-taking illness. The rate of suicide has increased um, um, again in you know in in this group that age group that Michelle's talked about, but really in all age groups, um, it continues to be very high, and so. So you know, we, we, we deal with this question a lot in the Depression Grand Challenge that Michelle and I run. And, um, you know, and our view is nobody asks this question about diabetes. Is diabetes mm. something that is an affliction of the worried well? Um, depression, in the way we see it, and no matter what you think of the causation, no matter what you think is the treatment, we see it as a condition that, that robs people of their ability to live life the, the way they should be able to do it. And, and so, so I feel it's really important to take a strong stand on that matter. I, I don't think that this is a disease that is made up and is, is just simply the whining of the worried well. And I, I think it's really important for those of us who care about this to really be very vocal about that. I would totally agree with that. <laughs> Is, is one of the um, corollaries to depression, is, is loneliness an epidemic today? That's a good question. Is loneliness an epidemic today? There's certainly a lot of surveys and literature mm -hmm. reports and news reports about loneliness and it's been connected in some ways with um, internet and social media and so forth. I actually don't know the data if, it's, if there's more loneliness than there has been. Do you know? I don't know if there's more loneliness. I mean, clearly loneliness is linked with well-being. 
and symptoms of depression. Um, but I'm not sure that loneliness is on the increase necessarily. But social connection is clearly something that is important for even prevention of depression. If you think not just about how to take care of people with depression, but you think about people at risk for depression. So I'm thinking, you know, children and adolescents, social connection is an important thing to teach. Regulating emotions is an important thing to teach some basic skills and exposures early in life. Um, Shelley, this is a, a sort of a question for you, but I want the others to, just because of your expertise and where you work, um, but have the others uh, chime in. Um, uh, Tom Insull, the former uh, director of NIMH, uh, sort of refocused the uh, institute's research on the search for biomarkers, um, as opposed to basically research into treatment. Mm. And uh, a lot of people think because of the rise of depression, that the immediacy of treatment is what's needed. Um, where do you stand on that? So uh, priorities evolve over time. And I think institute directors make choices in the moment about where they need to put more resources. Um, so I can speak to what we're thinking right now, Please, um, yeah. which is we're trying to find this balance, which is very challenging, between testing and developing new interventions for people who need care now but also developing preventative interventions to mitigate the risk for depression so people don't become depressed and don't have a lifetime of depression, as well as doing things like biomarker work. And the reason why biomarker work is important is because when we treat people with depression, when someone comes in with depression and needs treatment, it's a, it's a series of tri um, trial and error of how you treat them. Um, there are psychotherapies available. There are all different kinds of medications. Even when you try a medication, it will take a couple weeks before you know if the medication is going to work. And then time to adjust the dosage. There are side effects. So we really, the importance of biomarker work is in part to tell us which treatments work best for which people so that we, we can make better decisions and take care of people faster. So all of those things are important. And it's a delicate balance about how much of your resources you put in all of those areas. So we try to cover all of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nelson, do you have a Well, I, I mean, I agree with Shelley. And um, uh, you know, I guess I would say we think that those things should be integrated in order to be most effective. That is, treatment research benefits when the same group of individuals who are participating in treatment research, who are experiencing depression, say, and you know, and are interested in trying out new treatments, are also participating in research to see the effect of biomarkers and, and vice versa. So it's really the separation, which in our view is kind of an artificial separation between treatment research and discovery of mechanisms or discovery of biomarkers is, is really one of the things that has, in some ways, slowed the field down. Um, you can see this in other areas of medicine that, that have proceeded you know, more rapidly, like in cancer. Um, in cancer, really anybody who comes to a major medical center for treatment for cancer gets offered the opportunity to enroll in a clinical trial, often gets offered the opportunity to enroll in a trial of biomarkers, and nobody really questions the fact that they belong together. And we think that that's, that's really where mental health is moving. Yeah. And, and I'd like to add to that, just to sort of, s sort of lay the groundwork of where we're at right now in terms of treatment, when we look at the 
to basic modalities of treatment for depression. It's pharmacotherapy and psychological therapies. And there are certain psychological therapies that have shown to be effective in many, many, many um, randomized controlled trials. And there are many pharmacotherapies that have been shown to be effective. But they still only work about half of the time. In other words, about 50% of people achieve a state of remission once they go through a trial of either pharmacotherapy or psychological therapy. That means 50% are still symptomatic. So we have a long way to go in order to try to make these treatments more effective. The biomarker research is one way of trying to identify precise targets, just like in psychological research, the pre precise target. What is it that we need to target in order to make a treatment more effective, and for whom is this target most relevant? Um, and we believe that that combination of bio, biological research with treatment research then gives us a more personalized treatment approach that should be more effective than 50%. Is part of the problem with the antidepressants and the research, is, is it specifically for um, psychiatric illnesses? Um, is the, uh, the model of um, you know, random, randomized, double-blind, controlled um, studies, is, is that just insufficient for being able to look at uh, depression? Well, in my mind, there are a couple of issues. Um, I don't think that that's the biggest issue. Um, I think the really biggest issue is that we still have such a poor understanding of the mechanisms of what causes depression, what happens in our brains and in our bodies when we become depressed. And so that's really prevented research on new treatments from focusing on mechanisms in the way that it can in other, in other areas. And you know, I'll, I'll return again to cancer. Um, 20 years ago, cancer chemotherapy was essentially just you know, blasting the body with poisons in the hope that the cancer cell would die along with you know, the other cells. And that's why they had such horrifying side effects. But as time has gone on, as we've understood the specific mechanisms of cancer, the treatment research becomes more and more specific. And for particular people, the treatments um, become uh, more effective. Um, I'll actually call out UCLA because um, I know the chancellor likes this to happen. Today the, the, or yesterday, the Lasker <laughs> Awards were announced. And the That's winner right. this year for one of the Lasker Awards for somebody who worked out a molecular mechanism that led to the treatment um, uh, using the, the agent Herceptin for a category of breast cancer, which for many women has just had you know, completely transformative effects. It hasn't worked for everyone, but for those who had a particular mechanism of cancer, it was, it was remarkable. And, and we just have nothing remotely like that in depression. The things that work, they work for reasons that we don't mostly understand. Often they were things that were developed completely by accident when somebody was trying to develop some other kind of treatment. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's really the biggest reason why you know, we believe in addition to focusing on treatment research, we need to focus on research that's gonna get to the causes, the mechanisms, the different trajectories. And, and again, the other one is that, that we treat depression as a single entity coming to your very first question. 
when in fact we believe that depression is a constellation of many different diseases. And so when we try a new treatment, we're still trying it for everyone rather than for those who really may be the ones that will benefit. Right. And, and, and trying it for without knowing exactly where we're, we're targeting. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious about um, your reactions to ketamine. That's the new hot drug that, um, that works you know, within hours or days, especially with suicidal and extremely depressed people, but it's also controversial because it's um, you know, uh, a, a drug used as a party drug. Um, yeah. Yep. So I'm happy to start. Um, so NIMH played a large role in the funding of the research around ketamine. And it came in part from the idea that our current treatments, like SSRIs, were not effective for all people. And so our scientists looked at other areas, other neurotransmitters, other chemicals in the brain that could be altered. Um, and glutamate is one of them. That's how ketamine essentially works. Um, some of that is serendipity. Some of it was thoughtful. But I think it fills a gap for the time being. It's not going to solve all of our problems, but there are people who have treatment So it's actually only been approved by the FDA for treatment-resistant depression. So that's right. usually defined as people who right. fail yeah. at least two, yeah. two other therapies. And um, it's a promise for people who are suffering right now and it leaves their symptoms. It's not a long-term solution, and it is meant to be used in conjunction with other therapies for depression, not alone. Um, I'll add to that if I might. Yeah. So um, one of the very promising features of ketamine is that it has a very particular effect on positive mood. Mm -hmm. So most therapies for depression, you know, medications, pharmacotherapies like SSRIs or SNRIs, or psychological therapies for that matter, have their biggest effect on reducing negative emotions. Mm -hmm but they have not done a very good job at helping to raise positive emotions. And those two things are not just different ends of the same continuum, surprisingly. Um, and so it's always been a struggle. How do you, you, we can help people feel a little bit less negative, but how do you raise that interest in wanting to live life again? And so ketamine has been a promising um, drug because that's the first one that's really demonstrated that effect. Um, it's just the long-term consequences are still under mm -hmm. investigation. Um, and in the psychological world, in terms of treatments, because of advances in neuroscience, because of our better understanding of the brain circuitries that involved in positive emotions, they're different than the brain circuitries involved in negative emotions, that's led some psychological researchers uh, including my lab, to now, <laughs> to now develop um, psychological treatments that target that. How do we focus not on making people feel less negative, but actually increase their enjoyment of life? So I think it's a, the ketamine, I think was a really good example of neuroscience informing new treatment development that's now spreading out to other treatment developments in the psychological world as well. Uh, I think this would be a good time, Michelle and Nelson, to talk about the grand challenge and what it is and where you're at with it. Yeah, so, so let me start. Um, and um, Michelle and I typically do this in a tag team way, um, in which I'll give you a sort of a general introduction and overview, and, and then Michelle will talk about some of the things that I think people will be most interested in. I'll try to do this very quickly. Um, so um, UCLA is just celebrating its centennial, 
And, um, and Chancellor Block saw the centennial as an opportunity for UCLA to focus on a few really huge societal problems that are the kind of problems that can't really be tackled by one or even a few individuals, no matter how smart, dedicated, or well-resourced, but really to show how the breadth of expertise across a research university like UCLA can, can essentially in incorporate the, the spirit and, and talents of an entire campus. And the faculty were given um, the charge, come up with some great ideas, and we'll have a competition to see what seems both really important, but also something that where we can make an impact. And another grand challenge um, was developed and, and um, is underway that focuses on sustainability and what Southern California can do about its water resource usage, its energy resource usage, and so forth. But the other one was focused on depression. And it was focused on depression because we recognized um, that there is not a single person that any of us has ever met that is not in some way impacted by depression. That is, while many of us have either family members or friends who've experienced Alzheimer's disease, others of us have family and friends who've experienced autism spectrum disorder or, or any other brain malady, depression really does affect all of us. And as, you know, as the chancellor said at the beginning, it is really, in some ways, looming as the largest health problem in the world. So we felt this was something that whatever we could do, we could have an impact. And so we began to look at what we needed to do. And you've already gotten some sense of this. We've talked about the fact that we don't understand what causes depression and what goes wrong in our brains and our bodies when we become depressed. And we also have the need for new treatment approaches. We don't have any possibility of producing enough therapists or giving people access to enough therapy or other kinds of treatments to really create a dent. So we, we really began focusing on what I would say are three main areas. One, which is to discover the causes and mechanisms of depression. And we do that through two different approaches. One, which is studies of genetics, of the environment, of the trajectories of depression, which we're doing through what will be, we think, the largest study of of depression in humans that's ever been undertaken, ultimately involving more than 100,000 people. But it's at a very early stage. The second aspect of this search for causation and mechanisms will be through really fundamental neuroscience research. And UCLA has an enormous um, basic science community that is being unleashed on this, and we hope we'll have partners around the world at the National Institute of Mental Health, you know, in, in Europe, in all parts of the world. A second aspect of it, because we believe one of the reasons why people don't get treatment and also one of the reasons why there's been such a little focus on depression is stigma. Stigma continues to be an enormous issue, both in terms of the society not wanting to talk about or recognize depression and in terms of individuals and their families not coming forward. So we believe a major effort needs to be undertaken to both understand stigma better and then really to have a campaign to end it. This is something that we can do in our lifetime is to really end that stigma. But all of the things that I've talked about so far are things that are gonna take years for us to really see their effect. And as we've been talking about tonight, the need is to do something immediately. And that's really where the work of Michelle and, and the group that she yeah. has put together into the Depression Grand Challenge 
comes into being because what, what they're really focused on and what, what we really see is our most immediate progress or most immediate promise is what we can start doing right now to in a scalable way begin to abate the burden of depression. Um, so this is called the Innovative Treatment Network component of the Depression Grand Challenge. It has two missions. One is how do we take the latest discovery in neuroscience to build new, more effective treatments? And the second mission is how do we take what we know to be the current gold standard of treatment and make it more accessible to a wider proportion of the population? Because less than 50% of people who are currently depressed receive any kind of treatment in the United States. So there's an enormous treatment gap. That treatment gap is not only because there are not enough clinicians, it's also because of cost. It's a, a time, availability on the person's part to go to treatment, stigma and hesitation about seeking treatment. So there are lots of barriers to getting treatment. And so we took this into mind as we started to develop um, what we considered to be a scalable approach that would be high fidelity and began to apply it to that age group where we're seeing the biggest increase. So the 18 to 25 year old, or in other words, the college sample. So what I'll describe is now a model that we've developed that is currently being implemented to the entire UCLA student body, um, which is about 44,000 students. It, they can choose to use it. This is not pushed upon them, but they are offered this um, model. It's an integration of technology with in-person touch. It goes from prevention to acute care, and it's dynamic in that it will adapt the treatment according to the individual needs. So that's the entire model. In brief, it begins with an online screening device that students can do anywhere, at any time, on any device to get a feedback where am I at in terms of my levels of depression and anxiety? Much as you would do a check on blood sugar levels if you had a proneness to diabetes or much as you would do for any other health and well-being. That tracker, that mental health tracker, takes about five minutes. It immediately gives students feedback into where they're at and what their treatment resources are that they're then given access to. It starts at prevention, so if individuals reporting, I'm fine, no symptoms right now, you may benefit from an online prevention using cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most widely supported uh, psychological treatment for depression and anxiety. Um, but keep tracking, you know, throughout your entire school year, keep tracking yourself because there may be ups and downs, and we know there are ups and downs, and at some point you might want to move up to a higher level of treatment. Those who come in at mild to moderate levels of severity are provided cognitive behavioral therapy online with guidance by trained coaches. And these trained and certified coaches are other students at UCLA who've gone through a year-long course in how to not be a therapist, but provide support for the student who is using the online tool. That's the in-person touch at that level. And those students who start off at the severely depressed, suicidal, which we have many of, um, or 
with symptoms of bipolar disorder are triaged into the clinicians, the psychiatry and psychology clinicians who provide in-person care. So in this model, the clinicians, those people who are least available, are reserved for the most severely distressed individuals. But the entire time that the student enters this program and is continued for out to 10 to 12 months, they're tracked. So we're continuously keeping track of how they're doing. And if they're started off at the lower levels and they're not doing well, they're moved up to a higher tier of treatment. If they've been in the higher tier of treatment and done well but now starting to show signs of relapse, they're re-engaged with treatment before the full relapse happens. So this is called just-in-time adaptation. So the treatment fits the needs of the students as they progress through life in the same way that you would adapt your physical well-being as you adapt through life. Um, and then the final component is that in the entire way, th entire way through, we're doing a lot of work around suicidality. Um, so any time a student endorses suicidality, we have an automated alert that goes to a crisis team that reaches out to the student. So the student doesn't have to call the crisis team. The crisis team calls them, checks on their status, sees how they're doing, and implements whatever is necessary at that moment to get people back on track. And so this entire model, um, which is called the STAND program, screening um, and treatment for anxiety and depression, has now resulted in screening of over 6,000 students at UCLA, offered treatment to over 1,900, um, Suicide response to over 650 on over 650 occasions, not always not unique individuals, and led to over 400 student coaches being trained. And our goal is that this model can then be transported beyond UCLA to other places that have even greater need, which in California are the community colleges, uh, where rates of depression, anxiety are higher and resources are even lower. Uh, it's a wonderful program. I, I, I think at this point we'll turn to the audience for questions for the panel. Hi, my name is Bernie Wendell. First of all, thank you for this. It was great to hear. Um, you mentioned a lot of things that I'm aware of, and then you did mention a few that I'm curious about. So mindfulness-based stress reduction, there's a lot in that department. There's also dialectical behavior therapy as by Marshall Linehan, and there's also psilocybin, some of which has been studied over at um, John Hopkins recently. I'm wondering if anybody would care to weigh in on those three. Um, so mindfulness-based stress reduction, there has been a lot of interest in that, and it's certainly been demonstrated to be effective as a prevention of relapse. So one of the critical things about depression, it has a waxing and waning pattern, probably in relation to life stresses, but not always. And mindfulness-based stress reduction has been shown in a number of trials to be a very good method for preventing relapse after somebody's gone through an acute treatment phase. We are also investigating mindfulness as a prevention tool up front. So going into high schools and using uh, mindfulness as a method 
for those students who are at risk because of familial patterns or because of various temperamental features that they have. Uh, dialectical behaviour therapy, for those of you who don't know, is a, a, a unique form of cognitive behavioural therapy that is very specific to certain behaviours uh, and I'll call them emotional dysregulation behaviours that often get tied to suicide. Um, and so in our, when I mentioned our program, I mentioned the clinicians are delivering um, in-person care. Di dialectical behaviour therapy is one of those evidence-based treatments that we use as needed when appropriate for the right person. Um, the third one... Psilocybin. John Hopkins. Yeah, so um, so the question about psilocybin, I mean, this is something that's gotten a lot of attention, um, and, and particularly in the last couple of weeks, because Johns Hopkins, as you mentioned, just opened a new, um, you know, very richly endowed center to really investigate the use of psilocybin, and I think possibly other um, drugs that give psychedelic experiences both for depression and for other conditions, post-traumatic stress and, and, and others. You know, and I think the thing I would say is that um, there certainly is evidence that they are promising approaches. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of questions about how widely they could be implemented because, you know, I think there are questions about how many people are, let's say, willing to undergo that kind of experience. And then, you know, and then I think there are also problems in terms of how you actually do the research. For example, it's very hard to do a randomized trial um, because if you're getting the psilocybin, you know that you've gotten psilocybin and right. not the placebo. <laughs> right. And, right. Or at least you hope so. Yeah. Right. That would be a really remarkable placebo effect. <laughs> right. um, but, but, you know, I would say, like, if you asked me this question um, five years ago, which people did, um, I was more skeptical then than I am now. And that's probably the best answer I could give is that I'm still not 100% convinced, but I'm impressed by the seriousness yeah, of the effort. Yeah. Shelly, do you yeah, want to Yeah, no, I would just say it's a, still, it's a question in progress. Yeah. Uh, what do you know about negative programming and positive programming? Negative programming has to do with negative beliefs, negative thoughts, and oh. negative ineffective coping skills okay. like anger, anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, worry. And positive programming is positive beliefs with positive thinking and positive effective coping skills yeah. like empathy, uh, compassion, understanding, patience. As I had said before, you know, a lot of psychological therapies have really focused on the negative cycles and how do you interrupt the negative cycles by bringing them down, I would say, from negative to neutral. So, you know, in cognitive restructuring, it's how do you help people learn to think in a more evidence-based way rather than an overly negative way, right? The newer thinking that's emerging from the research is that a different set of skills is how do you teach people to attend to and savor positive experiences. And some of that can be done through compassion training. So compassion training within the context mm. of mindfulness is one of those techniques. We use virtual reality as a methodology for teaching individuals how to savor positive experiences and store that memory and consolidate that memory so it's more easily retrievable at a later point in time. So I would say that overall there's a shift in the field that's happening away from not only trying to reduce the negative but also trying to improve the positive. 
with the one other statement being that negative programming um, is probably a risk factor in the beginning for the onset of depression and anxiety. It's one of those, those characteristics of who is most likely to develop depression and anxiety. I'm Jalyn Prince. I'm the president of Madison House Autism Foundation, which works exclusive with the, exclusively on the issues of adults with autism. And we are seeing different reports coming out of different universities and places of research. There's very little research being done on adult autism, period. But we keep hearing bits of reports coming in about the age ranges that you're talking about through college of attempted suicides and suicides of those that are on the autism spectrum. It's already a somewhat invisible population because a lot of people don't really realize that there are adults on the autism spectrum. And I know you're working with a huge subject matter, but are you giving consideration into looking at the disabilities population with uh, suicide, with depression? I know there would be different modalities and treatment, but are you giving consideration because it would make this population yet even more invisible if it's not part of this whole dialogue? I'm not sure if you're familiar with the interagency uh, interagency autism coordinating committee. Excellent, great. So you know that we just had a workshop not long ago that was really focused on comorbidities and autism, and a big part of that were mental health comorbidities. So I think you're right. There's evidence not just of um, increased suicide and depression and anxiety, but other um, mental illnesses as well. So I think the question is. You know, we're trying, as a research agency, trying to fill the gaps in knowledge and what we don't know. You know, what evidence-based treatments may work in this population versus when adaptions or other kinds of approaches may be needed. So it's, it's something that NIMH has been focused on. Hi, my name's Don Lee. Um, I'm working on a technology company related to mental health. So I'm curious about um, the STAM program that you mentioned, Michelle. And I'm also curious about, with all the conversations going on about how technology could be perpetuating mental illnesses, per, per, particularly in the younger demographic. I'm curious how you guys view that, and how do you guys see technology being a part of treatment in the future, and what are you guys excited about? Yes, no, there is a lot of discussion around the harms that come with, um, with social media and various other um, forms of communication that um, can potentially uh, have risks associated with... Dis with um, bullying, uh, with harassment, with um, becoming overly addicted to, um, to technology at the cost of healthy living, um, with the um, isolation that it might convey, with the seeing my daughter sometimes, the distraction that it causes from everything else going on in life. Um, so there are a lot of concerns around that. There's a, a recent report out of Berkeley um, that looked at uh, rates of anxiety and depression in uh, college campuses across North America. And from 2008 to 2016, the rates of anxiety disorders doubled. The rates of depression increased by 60%. Um, and the correlate, but keep in mind it's just a correlate, and there were many correlates. One of the correlates were, was students who used social media more than 20 hours a week for leisure uh, was a correlate of anxiety in the most recent survey. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, there are so many other variables going on there we don't really know. 
the way we've looked at it is, you know, you have to be aware of the harms and, and the costs, but it's an amazing way of giving access to evidence-based treatments to people who would never otherwise get it. Um, and so we've been focusing really on how can we use technology in the best way possible so that people who just couldn't afford treatment or would be afraid to seek treatment uh, or just don't have the time to seek treatment by going to see a clinician could use technology. Um, that has been our goal. And I'm not sure if NIMH has a, a, a directive around that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're funding a lot of work in this space already and more continues to come in every day. And I think the reality is we're not going to change the culture away from technology. So what we need to do is leverage that and use it as an opportunity. And not just to treat people, but to identify people at risk. And I really want us to really think about how do we identify people much earlier before they are already in a trajectory of suffering and pain, right? Hello, everyone. My name is Logan, and um, I'll admit, when I first walked in the room, I thought the pictures on the walls were part of the discussion. <laughs> um, it made me think about yeah, community confusing. and the connectedness that is necessary. So I'm curious, to what extent is the breakdown of in-person community and the lack of belonging leading to depression, and what are two or three action items you might give us to take back to our communities to encourage greater vulnerability and less stigma around the topic of depression? Regardless of how much of the increase in depression can be attributed to that, I think almost all of us feel a wish and need for greater sense of community. So, you know, I cannot say from a scientific standpoint that I know that that's going to make a difference, but I think it's one of those things that, you know, that we should have as a goal and hopefully it will make a difference. And, um, you know, and, and I agree with you, seeing these pictures is, you know, is inspiring that there are actually things that you can do. And, you know, and um, you know, one thing certainly is, is all of us paying more attention to those that are close to us. I think that's, you know, that's something that isn't a scientific or, you know, or a physician saying it. That's, that's just something I think as human beings we really should be attempting to do more. So I, I do think that as a takeaway is, you know, really try to be closer to those that you are close to. And I, I think I'll just add to the, to the last point there. What we always advocate is talk about depression. Talk about it. Be, because the more the entire community makes it a topic of discussion, presumably the less stigma there will be around it. So People opening up around their own depression is really helpful, but not everybody can do that. But at least talking about this is something that's part of the human condition. It's here. And, and it's treat it like any other physical problem. It's not entirely physical, but treat it like a physical problem that it needs attendance. And we need to think about how do we manage our physical health and how do we manage our mental health. Before we close, uh, I want to thank our co-presenter, UCLA. We also want to thank everyone for joining us. And please do join us in the next room for our reception, where we'll continue the conversation with our panelists. And finally, please give one more big round of applause. <laughs>